0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, last week, Premier Doug Ford claimed his government would bring the best paid sick leave program in the country. But critics say what was announced yesterday falls way short of that. We'll discuss it. And to nobody's surprise, Ontario's Auditor General says long-term care homes were poorly prepared for the COVID-19 pandemic due to years of neglect. Instead of everybody playing the blame game, what's going to be done to fix it? And antidepressant use among youth is skyrocketing across Canada. Are we over-prescribing? Dr. Mina Tadros joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The big announcement yesterday, of course, from Queens Park, uh, Ontario now finally does have a uh, paid sick day program. I know there's been a lot of uh, back and forth between the federal government and the provincial government about this uh, over the last number of months, really. Uh, not just the Ontario government, by the way. Other governments have also been talking to the provinces about this. But they have uh, fashioned their own program right now. And uh, to talk about this, we are uh, pleased to welcome to the program Ontario's Labour Minister, uh, Monty McNaughton. Uh, Mr. Minister, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time Bill, today. great to be
1: with you this morning.
0: Uh, first question. I, I know you want to talk about some of the uh, the aspects of this, and we'll get to that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, why only three days of, of paid sick leave? Well, look. I, look I, well, as, as, as one of my colleagues said, I mean, uh, you know, the premier is is in the middle of fourteen paid sick days right now. Don't Ontario workers deserve the same?
1: Oh, look, this is uh, even better. This is twenty three days of paid sick days in total. It's a comprehensive. Uh, program that we're offering uh, three days of uh, paid sick days uh, through uh, employers and four weeks uh, at $1,000 per week uh, through the federal government. So this is a a comprehensive program. This is to ensure that uh, workers and their families uh, are protected during the uh, third wave uh, so we can finally defeat COVID-19.
0: Have you struck that deal with the feds yet?
1: Uh, Look, I I can uh, confirm there's been uh, a lot of discussions happening over the last uh, couple of days. Uh, Again, it it makes sense. The federal government has come to us and said uh, we're willing to help, so we have two requests for them. Uh, Number one is to simply double uh, your uh, uh, sickness recovery benefit from $500 a week to uh, $1,000 a week, and Ontario will pay 100% of the top-up. And secondly, uh, do better and do more when it comes to uh, securing our borders and preventing these variants of concern from
0: getting into Ontario. Are, are you confident that's going to happen, Minister? I know that you and your colleague, uh, Minister Bethlenfalvy, have been going back and forth with the feds right now, but the, the, the federal response seemed pretty dismissive of that.
1: Yeah, um, I, I noticed that the Prime Minister has been very uh, optimistic um, I and, and very positive. Uh, I, I know they're open uh, to this. Um, we you know, are going to continue to work on this. But you also mentioned it, this isn't just Ontario. I mean, the British Columbia NDP government has come out and said, you know, the federal government has to be uh, at the table uh, with us to be a partner. Uh, Ontario is the very first province in the country to move forward with uh, paid sick days uh, during COVID-19.
0: Yeah, well, the Yukon did one too, but I guess that actually predated uh, COVID. Uh, they, they actually have a policy, I'm sure our listeners are aware of this too, a maximum of 10 days wages per employee and 14 days to cover the isolation periods. And that's been in play for quite some time. And I guess on a technicality, you're right, they're not a province, they're a territory. But uh, it's been slow coming, and, and I know that a lot of the provinces, including Ontario Minister, uh, have been asking the federal government for a national policy on this. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but uh, the fact that we've got something going here uh, is 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 great news i guess for people that are saying you know it's about time that we got some assistance here how soon can you get this implemented though i mean this has been an idea who probably should have been done six eight months ago Well, I'm going to
1: uh, introduce legislation today to bring forward the Ontario COVID-19 Worker Income Protection Benefit, which will include uh, three days of uh, paid sick days uh, and, of course, uh, four weeks of uh, doubling that uh, federal uh, program. But again, this is uh, very comprehensive. Uh, The three days, for example, are very uh, flexible uh, for workers. Um, if you uh, need to go and get vaccinated, uh, you uh, will be paid for that. If you have to recover from your uh, vaccination, you can use one of these days or or half of uh, one day if you need to. Uh, If you're a mom or dad and you have to stay home and look after a son or a daughter who has symptoms uh, related to COVID-19, you can use one of those uh, three days. So it really is uh, flexible, uh, generous. Um, it's it's certainly pro worker, but also I'd like to point out that we're um, certainly standing with our small business uh, community. Small businesses have really um, bore the brunt of uh, COVID nineteen. Have really struggled through this. Uh, small businesses will be reimbursed uh, for their payments.
0: That's the the three day payments, right?
1: Yeah, because we've seen over the last few weeks, for example, the Ontario Liberals coming forward, they want uh, 10 paid sick days, but they want all 10 paid sick days to be on the backs of of small businesses. We take a a different view. We want small businesses to be able to grow and prosper uh, coming out of COVID-19. But most importantly, we need uh, jobs for workers to go back to. So this uh, is a balanced approach, uh, 23 days uh, for workers, and uh, small businesses and employers will be reimbursed.
0: Minister, what about, uh, what about freelance employees? I mean, there's a lot of people that, uh, that are, are not beholden to a larger company. They've started their own businesses and things of that nature, uh, but they may have employees as well that are freelancing. What happens with them?
1: Absolutely, and uh, that's uh, one of the biggest reasons why we've gone uh, to the federal government to double that uh, weekly benefit because under the federal program, um, gig workers, for example, those Uber drivers out there or anyone that works in the gig economy, and there's hundreds of thousands of them uh, in Ontario, and self-employed people uh, would be covered. So there would be four weeks of uh, paid sick days for
0: them. Uh, The other element to this, too, of course, the sick days is one element of this. What about validation for this? I mean, some provinces uh, were suggesting that maybe a doctor's note was going to be required or some validation that they actually have symptoms or that that they need to go and get vaccinated. Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, Look, I I trust workers uh, across the province, and uh,
1: there's no sick notes uh, required. We want workers to know that if they're sick or have symptoms, stay home.
0: How, now you, you mentioned you're going to introduce this ASAP. Uh, the, the, the typical course course of action here is, as you well know, Minister, is, is first reading, second reading, third reading. Uh, can you expedite that, or is this going to have to go through a process? Well,
1: absolutely. Uh, my goal is to get this done as quickly as possible uh, for workers uh, right across uh, the province. Uh, and then we also need to, you know, continue pushing uh, Justin Trudeau and the federal government to up their program. So this, uh, this is going to get done. And I, I should also mention, because it's important for everyone out there to know that this uh, program will go until September the 25th. Uh, that is tied to uh, when the federal program ends, but it's also retroactive uh, to April 19th. So if any worker, for example, last week had a day or two off, they can get uh, paid through their employer and their uh, employer can get reimbursed through uh, Ontario. Uh,
0: Minister, is that September date carved in stone? I mean, the federal government's initiated a sunset clause on many of their policies, too, and it has extended them as the pandemic has continued. Uh, God forbid that should happen, but if it does, is, is the government going to be flexible about that date?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I said that uh, yesterday. Um, We'll be with workers uh, until COVID-19 is uh, defeated here in Ontario. We'll help them get through this. And uh, if we have to prolong this, uh, we certainly will.
0: Minister, I know it's a busy day for you. Uh, Lots of things going on uh, with the media and, uh, of course, with your office right now. We do appreciate you taking some time for us today. Thanks so much. Stay well. Anytime, Bill, and stay safe, everyone. You too. That's Monty McNaughton, of course, the Minister of Labour for the Ontario government, with uh, his description of the paid sick leave program, which a lot of people simply say just doesn't stack up to what we really needed. Uh, The concern here, of course, is uh, is about uh, the length of time. And and the the point is the question, of course, having to do with 14 days of isolation. uh, And he's suggesting that there's going to be another program and some federal money. But that's not done yet. Uh, so, you know, that's that's that sounds like a great idea, but until the feds come to the table and actually sign an agreement, uh, it doesn't exist. And so people are still going to be left high and dry until that does happen. Uh, even, you know, you talk about the fact that it's going to be retroactive, but it, uh, if you finish your three days, uh, you've got a concern about where the money's going to come from. I want to bring uh, Andrew McDougall into the conversation. Andrew is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. Professor, uh, thank you so much for being back in the program today. Glad you could be with us today. No problem. Your reaction to to what happened yesterday and and to Minister McNaughton's description here?
2: Well, I think when most people look at this, you know, they're seeing a government that's kind of under a lot of pressure right now. And it looks pretty much to sort of, I think, everybody that's made any comments on it, that this was a reaction to the politics that they just could no longer ignore. They had to do this. Uh, I don't think that the government particularly wanted to Uh, over the course of the, um, you know, before the pandemic, uh, you know, hit. the, The conservative government had been eliminating paid sick days. Um, they were very resistant to bringing this program in, um, but the politics simply became such that they couldn't ignore the calls for it in the context of a pandemic, so they had to bring it in. So I think for for most observers, this very much looks like a government that's under duress and is being forced to bring this in, rather than it being a program that they would like to bring in.
0: Given the uh, the tsunami of protest about this, the fact that they didn't talk about this previously though, uh, is this sufficient? Is this going to quell the, the concerns?
2: I think a lot of people think that it's better than nothing. Um, And you've had a lot of commentators say at least here you've got the three days. And, you know, that would seem to suggest that there's going to be a a little bit of help that is going to be there for people that, you know, that need it. But, you know, there is the glaring reality that if you're isolating, that's two weeks and this is only three days. And, you know, that leaves a big question over the program but what do you do with, with the rest of that time? And a lot of people, the argument goes, are going to have no choice but to go back to work, maybe in a, in a, condition that they probably shouldn't be, uh, you know, given the context of the pandemic.
0: Well, and as you probably just heard the minister suggest that uh, he figures on day four, if that's going to happen, uh, that you would shift over to to this deal, what's going to be done by the federal government. But as, as we were just talking about, uh, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of synchronicity here between the feds and the province right now. That's not going to happen anytime soon, I wouldn't think.
2: Uh, it looks like the government is kind of doing this on the fly. Um, you know, and and this is something that people have been calling for. And they are introducing these programs, and they do say that there is more help that's coming, but it definitely looks, from the outside, as though this is something that is kind of being thrown together. And they're trying to bring, uh, you know, as much help maybe as they can, but they weren't really planning on doing this, so this looks like it's kind of coming together, you know, under a lot of pressure. I don't think it really helps much that the premier is himself isolating right now. And, you know, he's got the cabinet out trying to defend a program that a lot of people say is falling short, and the premier himself is kind of an example of the pressure that people are under, where they have to self-isolate and they, you know, they can't go into work. He can, you know, he has the luxury of being able to to stay at home,
0: but a lot of other people don't have that. This is the old "I do as I say, not as I do" situation.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people are reading it that way. But I mean, you know, others are saying, "Look, this is help. This is going to, you know, have an impact. It's better than nothing." Um, but whether or not it's sufficient or not, you know, there's a lot of debate around that.
0: Were you actually even surprised they made the announcement? Because the, the 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 talking points coming out of Queens Park almost hours before this were just the opposite of what they actually ended up doing. Uh,
2: I mean, I wasn't particularly surprised that something has come together. The, the politics on this, you know, has become, uh, you know, pretty uh, pretty clear that this is this is not the the pre pandemic you know conservatives where they had a strong base at least in my view, that might have supported some of these reforms, such as getting rid of paid sick leave. I mean, this is a pandemic, and I think a lot of people's sort of views on this have changed. And although there was some resistance at Queen's Park to to a program, uh, I think they began to sort of read the writing on the wall that something was going to have to be done in this area. And so when, when a program started to emerge, I wasn't particularly sort of surprised. But it is interesting seeing how, you know, this is coming together kind of in real time. Uh, you know, there was this very strong push back against that and eventually a recognition that that wasn't going to work. So we are kind of seeing this come together sort of on an almost day by day basis. Again, I mean, it's going to help. It is, it is more than nothing. Um, but, you know, they're going to have to play this very carefully and defend the program as being, you know, what's needed in this situation.
0: It's interesting to watch the progression of uh, of the government's concern about this and, and their, their resistance to it. Uh, initially, of course, when the opposition parties brought this up, it was, well, these guys are just playing politics. Uh, when a number of healthcare professionals started, including his own science table, uh, he accused the doctors of playing politics. And, and now here we are simply saying, okay, here's your policy. Uh, it, it, I, which I think probably just underscores what you're saying, that, you know, this, this was, really probably motivated more by political pressure than to quote unquote do the right thing
2: yeah i mean there's clearly the pressure that's
0: that's there for it
2: and it is interesting watching the government you know sometimes getting into a little bit of a fight with the science table and it's not at all clear that they're going to win on uh, on a fight like that Uh, you know people are very much you know dialed into what the scientific community is saying about the pandemic you know they're weighing what they're saying against what the government is saying quite often they're in lockstep. I mean it's not like they're always um, you know fighting on on how to handle this. You know, there is a, there isn't a huge amount of light uh, here. but you know in this particular area there was you know, a little bit of tension. and it, you know from the you know from an outside observer's perspective, the scientific community on this one seems to have won and you know people are in this particular pandemic context very open to the idea of paid sick leave. and it became clear that the, the government really couldn't resist that.
0: Uh, it's amazing what a public opinion poll is, not it, Andrew? I mean, there was the two of them, I guess, that came out this past week. Uh, had the uh, the Conservative Party, the Ford Conservative Party, uh, in the low thirties uh, in their approval rating. Uh, and when that happens, it's not the first time it's happened in their two and a half years. Uh, they respond, whether it's reversing a policy or backing away from a policy, whatever the case may be. So there's a pattern here, isn't there?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, of course, politicians always pay attention to the polls, however much they might say that they don't. And if they realize they're on the the losing end of 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 an argument they're often very quick to to change course as, as we saw here i mean the conservatives are by no means out of the running uh in terms of you know the next election there's a very strong support base there for them and you know at many points over the pandemic they've been doing very very well um, much mm-hmm. better than the opposition has uh you know so there's a lot of people that are, are still very open to to the ford Conservatives, um and i think and i think everybody pretty much recognizes that on this particular debate it didn't look like they had the public with them and they changed course But, you know, I mean, as they say, a week is a very long time in politics, and the next election isn't, you know, for another year. By no means are the conservatives, you know, out of the running for for winning the next time around. But on this particular one, they knew they had to make a course correction.
0: Professor Andrew McDougall, always a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks so much for the time. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. No problem. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big day in Queens Park, as we mentioned, the uh, paid sick day announcement. Also, the uh, release of the Auditor General's report about uh, long-term care in this province of Ontario. Uh, There have been a lot of studies that have gone on about this over the last little while. Uh, And yesterday, uh, after the uh, Attorney General Bonnie Lissick actually released her report and talked about some of the uh, key points in that, uh, the government did respond. Ontario's Minister of Long-Term Care uh, says that this report, that's done by Bonnie Lissick in the AG's office actually uh, represents what's happened from the previous government. It's somebody else's fault. Here are her thoughts on that.
1: As Long-Term Care Minister Lee Fullerton defended the government, saying the report pointed to deficits in the system before they ever took office, the leader of the opposition said it wasn't just a past problem. Not
2: good enough. Stop dragging your feet. When will long-term care be fixed?
1: Andrea Horvath pointed to the fact that Ontario was less prepared for a second wave even after the lessons learned from the first. But Minister Fullerton shot back, saying the entire thing could have been avoided had the NDP worked with the former Liberal government to fix it. And I will take no lessons from you as
3: I work to repair long-term care.
1: Minister Fullerton said the system couldn't be turned around on a dime, but she says they tried. Dave Woodard, Global News.
0: Uh, interesting back and forth. I guess that's the uh, political art of deflection, isn't it? Turn it around and blame somebody else for what's going on here. Joining us to talk about the report is Dr. James Thiessen. Uh, Dr. Tyson, of course, is the Director, Master of Health Administration and Community Care, and an Associate Professor at Ryerson University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you. Good morning, Bill.
0: As, as I'm sure you've read the report of going over it again uh, again this morning, no real surprises here. A lot of the stuff we already knew, sadly, and uh, the numbers and, and uh, the attitude and I guess the environment in which uh, our, our frail and elderly are being uh, looked after, and I use that term advisedly right now, is, is still quite disturbing, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. It's the, the report actually is a terrific kind of compendium, if you will, of um, of past issues and how the sector was really set up for failure when the COVID pandemic hit, um, it, it's, it's a perfect storm. And anyway, the report is quite an honest depiction, and the responses from the ministry are quite interesting. And um, I really hope it's a uh, offers a good map forward.
0: Well, I guess one of the things, the rest of this is, is really graveyard. I think they state this right in the first part of the thing. The Ministry of Long-Term Care nor the long-term care sector were sufficiently positioned, prepared, or equipped to respond to the issues created by the pandemic in an effective and expedient way. That that kind of captures the essence of the report, doesn't it?
3: Absolutely, and when you layer on that the um, the sector that were in the long-term care homes, the people in there are very vulnerable, and, um, You know, if you think about it, there are about eighty thousand people in those long-term care beds. That's less than a half a percentage of the population of Ontario. One less than one half, about one half of a percent, let's say. And they accounted for over fifty percent of the deaths. So they were really set up. They were crowded in facilities. Um, The staff there weren't enough staff. They weren't properly prepared. And a really interesting and good point that's made is that the long-term care homes operate kind of separately within the healthcare sector, and they really could have been integrated better with public health as well as hospitals.
0: It's also interesting that, uh, you know, we, we're obviously getting a response here from the minister and from the government on this, mm-hmm. uh, but the Attorney General was not simply pointing the, the finger at the government. She's talking about the operators of these facilities too.
3: Yes, she was. She just said that they they didn't, um, again, prepare the staff proper. They didn't have um, IPAC um, infection um, control. Procedures properly developed, the staff weren't trained. But they also pointed out that there's a 40% turnover in um, personal support workers um, almost every year. So, you know, it's it's a tough game to uh, train train them and have them leave.
0: There's a message there, isn't there? Because uh, I know yep. the government has said, "Well, we've responded to this, and they've they've instituted this program, uh, you know, to to expedite you know training of these people, and they're going to pay them while they're being trained, which sounds fabulous." Uh, but as 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 those people are going to go in one door, doctor, the, a lot of people are going out the back door and saying, "I can't take this anymore."
3: Absolutely. And as I said in our earlier conversation, a real issue is that um, they're not paying them enough. You know, yeah. and, and it's it's quite interesting that. If you look at the um, over five hundred million dollars that was allocated to support the sector, sixty um, percent of it went towards the uh, four dollar an hour wage boost that was offered, and that was um, some of that other some of that extra money wasn't spent, but that money was mostly spent. So I think there's a message there: you've got to pay these people well if you want to have have them regulated um, and have them stay in the profession. You've got to pay them better, which means the providers, be they for profit, not for profit, or municipal they need more
0: money. Well, and there's page, the wage gaps there, too, between private and, not, and not-for-profit, and there's a lot of stuff going on here that needs to be addressed, uh, which we thought the government was doing, but obviously uh, Ms. Lissick's report here indicates that a lot of the stuff that we knew to be wrong uh, in in the first wave of this uh, are, still exists in, in many of these facilities, including the overcrowding and a lot of other things that, that were contributory to, to the, I guess, the horrid conditions, really, that they were in.
3: Yeah, and, and this the tragedy really is, and I agree with you, Bill, is a second wave. Um, no one could say that they, they were surprised. Um, I don't know if they could have caught up within six months, but you think they, the system could have performed better.
0: Uh I'm not going to let anybody off the hook here, previous governments, because this has been going on, as you've told us, doctor, for many, many years. It's not just a a new problem that started during the pandemic. Uh, But I think the Auditor General addressed that, too. She says the report noted that infection prevention and control was inconsistently practiced even before the pandemic. And she cites between January of 2015 and December of 2019... Ministry inspections cited hundreds of incidents of non-compliance in about two-thirds of the homes, but she called the enforcement the, the term she used was problematic. I, I think probably stronger language was needed there, but uh, that that seems to be the essence of it. In other words, even if they're caught and they say you're you're not doing this properly, very little, if anything, was ever done about it.
3: Yes, and she really underlines that point um, that um, that yeah violations weren't really um, they were followed up, but there weren't. Significant consequences for the operators. Um, doesn't say a slap on the wrist, but it sort of sounds that way. So, yeah, um, a lot of these facilities just weren't um, doing the work properly, and they weren't forced to. So many did not. You're absolutely right.
0: It also, I think, addresses a lot of a lot of the stuff that we've talked to with about people that have been advocating for this too, and maybe some some policy decisions that were made that probably had adverse effects on that. And I was interested that she brought one aspect of this up. And I can remember when the government made this announcement, mm-hmm. uh, when they saw the, the, the outbreaks that were starting at this particular level. I guess we're going back to the first wave here, Doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they basically said, look, at, uh, family members who are caregivers are not allowed to go in. You can't do that. Uh, and, and she pointed that out and said that was probably the wrong thing to do because that really, what that did is it, it eliminated a level of care that those residents were getting.
3: That's right. That was a very tough call. They're worried about spread. Obviously, and people, family members bringing it in. But um, as I, I think it was Dr. Sinhoff, um from Mount Sinai, the geriatrician, he he makes a point that is um, quoted basically saying there's kind of a a risk versus benefit um, calculation that has to be made. And then to your point, there's a huge benefit to having family members come in not only to offer companionship but to supplement the um, help in the those very understaffed facilities and they erred on the safety uh, risk side and um there are consequences and 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 also if you don't have family members in there they're not keeping an eye on the on what's being done and what's happening in those facilities so that was a real problem
0: well, and families that have, you know, loved ones in those facilities certainly know that. I mean, oftentimes it's a family member or, or a good friend that may help with feeding or could help with a number of other things. I mean, there's some things, obviously, that staff are only trained to do. Uh, but that takes an awful lot of the pressure off staff. And, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, the, you know, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't here, because they were concerned about spread. Uh, but the, I didn't hear much of a discussion about that, and they just kind of went ahead with that. And anyway, the, the AG points that out and says that probably it could have been done differently in situations like this uh let's let's get into the elephant in the room which always is problematic for an awful lot of people in this <laughs> discussion doctor uh that's uh for-profit versus uh the 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 institutional uh, facilities that that are there through well our money obviously taxpayers money in situations like this uh there are those of course who will say there is a, a marked difference in in the way the treatment is done the, the pay of the staff and a number of other things and uh, the auditor general makes note of that today uh, she noted that 13 of the 15 homes with the highest number of COVID deaths are operated by for-profit entities Uh, the 15 homes only had 4.4 percent of all the long-term care beds but accounted for 28 percent of the resident deaths how do you read into that what's what's your takeaway from that
3: yes this has been an issue we've spoken about it's been kicked around you're absolutely right the private um facilities overall did not perform as well um now, certainly, the argument is that they're drawing money out to pay dividends and so on. That's not that much money compared to you know the amounts they get but um, yeah they they just didn't do as well. Um, I think though it's important to remember again that the municipal and for pro- not for profit um, providers have access to more funds The not for profits can raise through fundraising, and the municipal facilities obviously get subsidized by the by their cities and often have their land and so on um provided i'm not an apologist for the um um, for-profit providers and clearly the numbers that you show or you you mentioned um sort of show that the private ones didn't do as well i don't i think they can do better i don't think that's a reason for getting rid of them
0: well, how do you address something like that, the uh, doctor? I mean, there is an inequity, as you say. Uh, the, you know, the not-for-profits, of course, as they say. Well, you know, in the Hamilton area, we have two of them here that are run by the city. Uh, and, and you're right; it's a different, uh, it's a different set of rules there. I mean, you know, the, it's owned by the city, so of course they don't have to con- concern themselves with. I mean, they obviously all, everybody's concerned about their bottom line, but not so much there because it's funded by taxpayers. Uh, do we do we relook at that and reevaluate whether or not the the not-for-profits versus the profits should be on an equal playing field when it comes to that
3: i think if you draw you, I, I, overall this sector just needs more money the not for profit shouldn't have to be relying so much on fundraising the, the government um, grants right. as well as the fees paid by residents should reasonably cover the um, care that's provided um, the private, as I say, the, the, the private operators don't have access to that. What's really interesting, I think, about this report is that, you know, we've all seen these Auditor General reports over the years. I really, was this was interesting. I really got no sense of them, of her calling the um, sector out for wasting money. There was no, there was no. No, um, I didn't see that
0: either. You're right. Right.
3: And again, but that's always the case in those things. Oh, this money's being used badly. I didn't get any of that. Um, so she's making a lot of recommendations. And um, they're all going to cost money. I I think that we we have to move in that direction. I think that uh, responsible private providers, um, and to a point you've made, properly regulated, can deliver good care. Um, But they're going to need more money to do it.
0: Well, I, I know I've drawn the parallel in the past about the, the restaurant evaluations that are going on in the province right now, and and I happened to be on a city council in Hamilton when that was that debate was going on, and boy, we got a lot of pushback on that, and and it's going to put us out of business. Well, they, you know, there's compliance. Ninety-nine point nine percent of them are complying right now, and if they are found to be in non-compliance, they fix it right away. I mean, if you put the rules in place and say you're going to enforce them, they, they these people are not idiots. I mean, they they will follow the rules, all right. But if they know that nobody's going to come and inspect, and if they know that there's no consequence to this, things can slip in situations like that. I I don't, I don't think you have to point these people as evil necessarily, but I think you know there has to be a, an understanding of exactly what the protocol is supposed to be here. And I don't even know that that that's really there. If, or if, and if it is, it's certainly not being adhered to.
3: <clears throat> yes. The again, it goes back to the enforcement of these regulations.
0: Yeah, I don't know why the
3: government's so gun-shy on this um, and not um, penalizing Um, non-compliance. One thing I kind of wonder about, um, like, we're in real trouble if a lot of these providers decide to pull out of the industry, right? You know, over 57% of the beds, I think, are um, privately uh, run something like that. Um, so if if you come down too hard on them and they leave, they've got valuable research or research, real estate uh, properties in big cities, some of the big cities, uh, what if they exit the industry? Um, that said, that doesn't give them a free pass. I think, again, with some um, proper funding, I think they can do better. And, um, and they have to just be more – they need more accountability. And in these larger chains um, at the – site level at the facility level the accountability
0: is not there the federal government has talked uh, over the last couple of months uh, doctor as you know mm-hmm. about getting involved in this uh, there's as, as not you know you might have expected there's some pushback from the provinces because they say okay that's our jurisdiction uh, but th- do there need to be national standards here is that would help the matter at all or is it, is that just a, a pie in the sky idea that, that probably isn't even going to be something that could be applied here
3: well yeah it it's, it's a great idea. Um, I think they, they really have to up the ante. Um, there'd have to be significant funds to get the provinces to go along. Um, I think, I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable, frankly, but as something I keep saying, I think what we should think about nationally is a uh, long-term care insurance program, <laughs> you know, um, just to make sure there's an envelope of money available just for home and community care as well as long-term care because we know that the hospitals, look. if you look at the... Um, how the province responded to the pandemic. The hospitals were the leaders in this. And mm-hmm. the um, long-term care facilities are kind of just left vulnerable. Um, and home care basically got didn't really get any support. Um, so I think that it's really important to have a separate pool of money, along with those national standards, I think, which can work to support that sector.
0: But your your point is well taken here. None of this is going to work unless they put some money into the program. And I I got the sense that was the, the message the AG was giving here. When you look at the recommendations, I think there are 16 major recommendations that she put mm-hmm. here in the report. And all of them basically say you need better training, you need more staff, you need more facilities, uh, you need more oversight. In other words, you know, kaching ka ching, it's going to cost <laughs> money. And and that I hope is the takeaway the government's going to get out of this.
3: Yeah, you know, a really interesting sort of minor one was um, she was suggesting that the ex- the long-term care ministry uh, leadership didn't really have expertise or sector knowledge about uh, long-term care. And the recommendation was at least senior, the ADMs and so on, um, have familiarity with the sector. And the, the ministry's response said, Well, no, when we are recruiting um, leaders, we look at kind of more generic leadership qualities that sector knowledge um, really isn't as important. And this is the only. and then the um, Auditor General pushed back and said, no, we're sticking with this recommendation. The people in that ministry should understand this is a unique sector and familiarity with the operations on the ground will really deliver better outcomes.
0: Well, and you—you you wonder if the government might be a little more receptive to that idea. I mean, it, it was this government that created the ministry in the first place, because they said it was special and it needed special attention, uh, and and I think that's really what the auditor general was saying, wasn't she?
3: Yeah, that's a great point. So they set up this ministry, this separate group, and then um, yeah, but but I guess there is a professional civil service ethos that assumes that um, you know that these again leadership skills are generic and can be applied across the board, well, I I think that uh, that's not true.
0: Well, if we've learned anything from the pandemic, uh, it's that we need to listen to our, our, our experts, our medical experts, when it comes to this. And and uh, and they and they, like you say, they're going through the motions. They, You know, they did appoint a science table. Uh, you know, we can debate, I guess, until next Wednesday as to whether or not they listen to them all the time, but they've set that up. Uh, there are people like yourself, Doctor, and so many others in this province right now that are strong advocates for this and have the expertise here. You'd like to think that every now and then they might pick up the phone and say, what's Dr. Thiessen think about this?
3: <laughs> well... Yeah, I mean, there, there, yeah, there's lots of advice out there, and it's pretty consistent. Yeah. And there's really not much, to your, as you start out saying, there's really not much in that report that hasn't been said in the last 25 years. So, um, yeah, but just listen to the experts and defer to them. Um, this is kind of a, a national problem in Canada, in fact. Mm-hmm. We have people that are in the bureaucracy that are well-meaning, well-educated, well-trained, but they might not know the business that they're running.
0: Well, there are people that do, and uh, they're just a phone call or an email away. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Uh, Stay well, and we'll talk again soon.
3: Thank you, Bill, and you take care, too.
0: Dr. James Thiessen, of course, from uh, Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A rather shocking study that was done by the Toronto Star uh, indicates that antidepressant use among youth is skyrocketing across the country right now, prescribing drugs for uh, people that are suffering from, well, let's face it, stress and a number of other uh, disorders, and a lot of it, of course, related to the pandemic. But the numbers here are staggering. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Mina Tadros, who is a pharma epidemiologist and scientist at women's college research institute and also an assistant professor at the university of toronto uh doctor thank you so much for the time glad you could be with us today Uh, thanks for having me let me ask you right off the bat here i'm sure you've seen the report here that was in the toronto star a 240 percent increase in antidepressant prescriptions for people under age 18 uh in bc alberta manitoba saskatchewan and quebec Uh, that's in a 10-year period of course between 2009-2019 what's happening doctor
4: yeah, this is in line with, with a number of other studies that have been coming out over the last decade, including some that we've done, that have sort of highlighted that you know, the, the rate of prescription in youth is going up. And, and the way that I kind of frame this for folks is that this could be a good news or a bad news story, and, and lately the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, what I think is happening is that there, there is good news in the sense that we, we've been doing a strong fight and shaking off the stigma around mental health, and, and perhaps especially among youth, there's a, there's a greater comfort to have these discussions, seek help, and talk to folks. Uh, when they need it, and I think there's been a lot of support systems built and a lot of programs and schools that have helped support that. So what that means is that people are talking about it and willing to say, okay, there's something. Uh, you know, I might not be, I might not be in the best shape here, and they and they go seek the help, uh, and they're getting some sort of prescription there. But that's the good news. The bad news might be that you know we know that the best treatment for some of these, you know, depending on uh, on the indication and the use of it for for depression, one of the best in the, treatment that you can get is to get a prescription and to get some therapy alongside with it. And we know that that's often a very strong tool. So what we're worried about is that maybe they're only getting the prescription because it's cheaper and easier to do. Uh, and so we're not quite sure if this linking is actually leading to better outcomes or we're just giving people medications just to get them through.
0: Because I know in the past there's always been a criticism of the medical profession, as I'm sure you're aware, doctor. People say ah they just write scripts and they you know that that's all the medication to everything. And uh, I got to tell you that the physicians I know and the specialists I know don't have that mindset at all. Uh, they look at this as as a tool uh, to try to help with others. But you mentioned that it should be a two-part process. The other part, of course, uh, being to get some help and some therapy on this. Uh, is is that readily available to people that are in need?
4: Well, I think that's the problem, right? And I think uh, this isn't shocking news out of my mouth that, you know, that that access to therapy and psychiatrists is limited in in Ontario. And uh, I think that there's wait wait times and and it depends across the province. And we also, we know that there's marginalization issues that have, you know, access issues. People who are better off often get better access to psychiatrists. And so there's a lot of issues there of how people get it. Now, you know, speaking to your point about your colleagues telling you that they would rather, you know, if someone has symptoms and they need help, it's better that they get a prescription and they start getting treatment of some sort that have nothing at all, right? And I, and I think that that's a dilemma that many prescribers are in, where they're trying to get people the access, they're trying to help them navigate the system, which is limited and strained, but at the same time, they have to help treat them uh, because these people are in need.
0: There's, I'm sure you're aware there was a criticism some years ago about maybe over-prescribing in situations like this for uh, people that, uh, that are diagnosed with things like ADHD and things of this nature that, that Ritalin was the go-to medication and, boy, that's going to fix your problems for you. Uh, they seem to back away from that just a little bit. Talk to us about the process, about how an evaluation is made, uh, about, first of all, what the the teen might be dealing with, and secondly, what medication might be available to do it, to do something about it.
4: Yeah, so I think what's interesting about the Toronto Star analysis is they looked at it from the medication lens. What I think people need to realize is that a single medication can be used for a plethora of different things, right? So an antidepressant, if you think about Prozac or Paxil or whatever, these are kind of the more common brand names. And when those are used, they can be used for people with anxiety. They can be used for people with major depressive disorder. They could also be a combination of mental health indications where someone may be living with um with one disorder and having to, to deal with another one. And so it becomes very complicated to navigate that. And that's often why these specialists need to be helped, especially in more complex situations. And I think what's happening is the decisions are, are kind of made around what is the best treatment guidelines, and especially for youth, there's very few, you know, of that list, there's, there's a lot of antidepressants, but in youth, there's actually only a small list that have been studied. And so you're limited to a certain number that you can use. Now, the question of are they being overprescribed um, is always kind of a concern on the back of everyone's mind, especially with, you know, with stimulants and things like that. I do have to say that when we have looked at this, and, and a number of studies have looked at this, we actually worry about under-prescription, that people aren't getting treatment when they need it, they're not getting caught in time. We, interestingly enough that you mentioned ADHD, uh, I think what we found is that some people are actually getting diagnosed later in life when they should have been diagnosed earlier and perhaps reach treatment. And So we're actually seeing an increase in use in adults. Because they're they're finding out in college or later on in the workplace that they may have something that that should have been caught earlier on.
0: And we've heard those stories of you know adults that are in an environment saying you know I I always had problems in school and now I'm having problems at my job whatever that might be and uh, and all of a sudden there's this diagnosis for somebody who's in, maybe in their 20s and they're figuring you know how come I didn't get caught earlier? Uh, is is it, is it easily noticed? I mean, how do you make that that that, that diagnosis?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what happens is that for some of these folks when they're in high school. Um, you know, they're, they're really sharp, and I think they, they develop different mechanisms to deal with it. Uh, and then when they end up in different types of environments, whether it's it's university or if they end up in, in a workplace that shifts the way that high schools work, they suddenly find themselves not, like, that, that, that they're they're at a disadvantage in some sort of way. And it's at that point that they often have these conversations with a prescriber of some sort who may like, like, listen, you've been living with ADHD for a while now, and this may be an issue. And I think the same thing happens for other mental health disorders, where they try to, and what we worry about is people try to self-medicate, whether it's with with alcohol, with cannabis, and with, with a variety of different things. And they don't actually seek professional help. And then what ends up happening is that later on, when it gets more serious, or we don't even catch them at all. And so, you know, I, I think from these studies, it, it's obviously concerning, and we should continue to monitor how these medications are used and making sure they're appropriate. But I don't want people to deter and say they don't need a medication when we know that, especially in the midst of COVID. We, we are seeing an increased pressure on our mental health.
0: Well, and an increase in in well, potential suicides, and in some cases, tragically, uh, suicides that, that you know are, are carried out to the full extent of that. And we've seen those numbers too, and that's problematic. Uh, can that be dealt with through medication? Does that, it, talk to us about what that medication is actually doing, taking the edge off, obviously, and maybe you know try to add some sense of stability here. But does does it deal with the depression itself?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think when we'll talk about these class of medications called uh, SSRI, so serotonin, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, this is cla- the classic Prozac and antidepressants. The way that they work is that they're they're helping your brain rebalance some of the neurotransmitters or like the, the signaling pathways in the brain. And so that's, that it makes it easier in that case for cognitive therapy to take place and for change of the brain to take place. We know that these drugs are, are now 30, 40 years old, uh, some of them being even older. And we know that in, in, in countless different studies, in a large number of clinical trials around the world, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of really strong trials, that they work. They improve on various different scales, and they reduce uh, those, those incidents of self-harm in the long term. And so we, we, we have a pretty strong idea of how well these medications work. And generally, although with everything there is a safety concern, they're pretty safe medications. And so... There is a pretty good risk benefit when it's needed and when it's indicated and then and, and again that is often you know is made by a professional
0: is, is there ever any concern about long-term use I mean we know that you know anything that we put into our bodies is going to have uh, some side effects I guess as, other than you know what the intended use of, of the medication in situations like that but I mean if I antibiotics and things of this nature you know you only take them for so long because after a while the body uh, is going to react in a way that probably is not favorable to the individual are, are, are these medications uh, in that family
4: So, you know, for most medications, we don't have long-term clinical trials, right? Like, you know, I have patients that come in and they've been on some of these for years and I don't think that we have any clinical trials to look at that. But generally what we've seen is that long-term, you know, they they, they do okay and there's not really any strong signals like in other medications where there might be some issues. I will flag for folks, and this is why I get scared when some of these news stories hit, that especially these medications, what we worry about is people suddenly stopping them, especially when you've been on them for a long time. Don't suddenly stop that medication. Go talk to your professional, go talk to your doctor, talk to your pharmacist and say, well, okay, you know, maybe I don't need this anymore. Um, And and obviously the goal is, if possible, we want to reduce or eliminate those medications. Like, we don't want people on it lifelong if it's not needed. For some people it is. But don't suddenly ever stop these medications, Um, but instead talk to a professional so they can help you kind of taper off them when that's needed.
0: Which kind of circles back to what you were talking about at the beginning of the discussion—that that the therapy has to be part of this. In other words, there has to be that dialogue uh, between the professional and, and, and the patient. There,
4: absolutely, absolutely. I think that that's that's sort of crucial to this, and I and I and I hope that the uh, that, you know the story that comes out of this is that our youth are talking about mental health, they are seeking it, and 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 then th- that there is a need, and it's growing. Um, so we should try to meet them halfway to better improve that. So, you know, prescriptions are only half the battle, and, and we, need to, we need to make sure that the other supports are there as well.
0: Well, exactly. I mean, I'm trying to connect the dots here, and I, I remember the story that came out last year in the first wave of the, of the pandemic uh, that, that suggested that there was like a 400% increase in, in, in teens, actually, that were calling the kids helpline. Uh, that's, that's a national number, but it does indicate that they're cognizant of what's happening to them and that they're seeking help.
4: Yeah, I, I think it's very, I don't think, I think we can all be empathetic to what's happening. I think we're all feeling that pressure. Um, and we, we, youth are extremely vulnerable, right? It's a period of change and, and, and you're, and you can't help but your heart going out for them in that in that period. I think we can all remember what, how stressful that period of time was, um, but also just the amount of change and, what, and the things that they're missing out on right now. And, the, and those stressors can, can mean a lot. There's there's, uh, I'm not. There's not a news slide, but There's a lot of uncertainty right now, and so you mm-hmm. can imagine in a period of dramatic change, having that level of uncertainty can have some real, real detrimental effects on on youth.
0: Doctor, the, uh, the the portal for anybody to access the healthcare system in in in, in our society anyway is usually the family doctor, the GP, uh, and, and and sadly, I know there are some people that still don't have a GP, but that's the situation I hope is getting better. Uh, what about the qualification, I, I, I is there training, I, do the GPs uh, understand what's happening, can they, can they sense the symptoms here, I mean because as you say even if, if I somewhere we to go to a family doctor and say look I've got these problems, uh, you need to see uh, Dr. Tadros, or, you know, it's, it's, as you say it's a long long time before you can get to see a specialist in any endeavor, not just with mental health issues, but just about anything these days. Uh, but but are you comfortable with the gp being that individual that maybe not necessarily start the therapy but to monitor what's going on in the interim
4: look i think i think without a doubt the gps are the front line right in many ways that they deal with the brunt of this and they're very well trained at picking things up and knowing when to hand things off and when to when they can uh and when to deal with it they are the largest prescriber of these for a reason right people go talk and often you know it doesn't always present with the same symptoms sometimes it's disturbance in sleep or changes in appetite and so they, they they're really clued in and well-trained in how to pick up these and know when to navigate that and in many ways the gps are the people that help you know many patients navigate that system what i'm hoping uh and one of the silver linings of of COVID is that as this goes on perhaps navigating people to specialists and those kind of care with virtual care starting to pick up might become an easier threshold rather than having to drag somebody into one of the big cities Uh, or dragging them into, you know, downtown Hamilton or downtown Toronto or whatever it may be, that we can actually uh, send people to to virtual care clinics and meet them where they're at. And hopefully the GPs can start helping navigate that uh, and and getting those kind of resources and needs and support that people need. So, you know, I'm, I'm very confident in the GPs and their ability to flag for folks uh, when they can handle it and when they can and hand them off i think we just need to better support gps to be able to do that for the community
0: i was glad you brought up the virtual aspect of this because i was going to ask you about that uh, it, it it seems to be at least to be a, a partial solution to this uh you know especially in these times and it's it's certainly technology with teens i guess would be actually be very comfortable with too is 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 that something that you see is going to be growing
4: absolutely i think uh, i think virtual care you know most patients now that don't have to follow up in some ways. You know, there are some things that we can't do virtually. You know, I speak to some of my colleagues that are dermatologists and trying to point your your, your rash or your issue in the camera may not do quite the trick. But for other folks like psychiatry, especially in mental health and GPs for common ailments and things like that, virtual care is a a wonderful tool uh, that's going to be there to help continue the continuity of care. Like, I, I don't think there's any reason moving into the future that we should drag a patient back into uh, into a hospital to see a specialist just to get a renewal on their prescription, right, or just to say, just to check in. I think those days are gone, and I think people are starting to realize, like, now that with COVID, they saw what the potential is, um, and I think that this is a huge opportunity for mental health, right, to be able to fill those gaps, make sure that we we break down all those barriers, and, you know, we've been fighting, Uh, Stigma, And I think now we can try to fight some of those other barriers using the tools of virtual care.
0: Is that stigma being eradicated?
4: I don't think it's being eradicated exactly, but I think we are starting to reduce it. And I I think that hopefully this increase in prescriptions is is a slight signal for that, right? That people are talking and willing to accept medications. Because, you know, to get a prescription from that, it does take a conversation. uh, And it does take seeking help. And so I think what this prescription is signaling is that more people are seeking help.
0: Doctor, so good that you had some time to talk to us about this and, and put some perspective on this. When you see the numbers by themselves, I mean, it can be a rather troubling situation, but uh, uh, we, we needed to get your professional advice and a perspective on this, and, and I think uh, you've allayed a lot of the concerns I think that people might have had when they just looked at some, the first part of the survey. Anyway, thank you so much for this today.
4: Awesome. Thank you for having me and bringing attention to this important topic. Have a great day.
0: You too. Take care. Dr. Mina Tadros, of course, from uh, University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900-CHML.